Hi, I'm Amy Silverman, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month we put true stories on stage. Welcome to our fourth season. This episode's theme, True Colors. In our first piece, hashtag the line, Stacey Mann Pearson lives the uncomfortable truths on both sides of Me Too. The call from the bosses came on a picture-perfect December afternoon, just a week or so before Christmas. Stace, can you get up here tonight? We have a new crisis client that we need your brain on. Total fucking disaster. I called my family, booked a 5-something p.m. flight, grabbed a change of clothes, and went to the airport. I work for a multi-state communications firm. When important people get into trouble, they call attorneys for legal help, and they call us, me in particular, to manage what comes out of their mouth. I credit my functionally fucked up childhood for the professionally, professional ability to talk my way out of trouble. Our team huddled the next morning, walking through the potentially devastating and currently cliche issue. A high-profile, politically connected, wealthy businessman was being accused of some nasty Me Too behavior. A reporter was sniffing around. A few hours later, on the 49th floor of the most impressive office building I've ever been in, the client's lawyer passed out non-disclosure agreements and began telling the backstory. In 2007, the guy was accused of sexual assault by a woman who claimed he held her head down and choked her while she blew him in his car outside of a bar. He said it was consensual, she said it was not. She called the police, then two days later, she filed a massive sexual harassment claim against her employer, a city, which our guy did a ton of business with. Her criminal and civil claims were investigated and debunked. The final report, written by a woman, mind you, stopped just short of calling her crazy. The official term was diminished credibility. Charges were never filed, media never reported any of it. Now, 10 years later, and in the heart of the Me Too era, a second woman is claiming the guy rape raped her. Almost two, dec almost two decades prior, after he snuck into her bedroom, climbed on top of her, despite her protests. He denied both accusations, but the math is simple. One false claim can be false. Two claims make both true. And if there's a third, the guy's toast. The men in the room offered their support. Our client just shook his head, held up his hand to silence them. Just stop. I was a huge asshole for a long time. I admit that. But I'm not a rapist. Hmm. Like I really hmmed at the guy in the meeting. And then I said, so hey, look, I want to believe you, I do. And I'm the only person, only woman here who can defend you in the court of public opinion, so I'm sorry. But I need to ask some really uncomfortable questions about where you draw the line between huge asshole and rapist. And for the next two hours, I grilled him. Were you in the front seat or the back? Did you grab the back of her head? Did you pull her hair the whole time or just when you were finishing? You finished, right? Could you choke her 
Like, is it anatomically possible for your dick to block someone's airway? Did she gag? Bite you? Cry? Swallow? Who knew about this? Who else knew? Why would the second accuser come forward now? Why were you in her room at all? Does she have other reasons to hate you? How much did you drink then? How much do you drink now? How do you define consent? What did it mean in 2007? What about two decades ago? I was impressed. Dude never flinched. Short story, he owns bars, spent the better part of 20 years drunk and or high, trying to get laid as often as possible with as many women as possible. Often in a grab her, kiss her, drag her to a private corner kind of way. He owned it. And had I met him in his heyday, I probably would have liked it. He looked pinched between being sincerely mortified by some of his behavior in hindsight and occasionally being proud of his most creative conquests. I listened without judgment and without mentioning my own freakishly relevant history. For example, I got his whole bar thing. I was raised in a tavern, own, in a tavern owned by my swearing, drinking, divorced, three times grandma. I learned to smile at the friendly, at a girl grab ass and recognize the creepy, rapey grope. And then there's that time in high school when that dude I met at a party dropped me off at my house at curfew, lurked maybe an hour, popped off my screen, climbed in the open bedroom window, jumped into my bed without any kind of invitation at all. And I didn't even kiss him goodnight in the car. But I had to choose between whether to scream and get my parents involved or just fuck him and get him out of there. At least he was quick. And I didn't mention that time at a work conference when I swung by my male colleague's hotel room. No biggie. We planned to walk to a big group dinner together. He opened the door wearing a towel, asked me to come in. He just needed two minutes to get dressed. I knew better than to go in. But I did. Dropped his towel, started jacking off. And like an Olympic hurdler in a sundress, I ran up over the bed to get around him and out the door. And his parting words were so weird. Did I scare you? Did I? He said with a grin without skipping a wank. And I didn't mention my worst boss, the one who would have been Harvey Weinstein's protege, the type of guy who thought Blackberry Messenger was invented so he could tell subordinate female staff, your talent inspired me hard this morning. After all, if Me Too taught me anything, it's that these are typical stories of a 40-year-old woman, right? I'd even go as far as to say I fared pretty well. Hell, there's a part of the hotel, there's a part of the hotel wanker story that's still funny. The part when I ran downstairs and told a woman I was traveling with what happened, her eyes bugged and she yelled, holy shit. And then she leaned in and asked, was he circumcised? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yes. The fuck? Bottom line is that members of the sisterhood have dealt with and continue to deal with way worse than I have to. And I've had to. So where was this client on the Me Too spectrum? No worse than my worst stories? Better? Dirty fun dude? Aggressive guy who's scary as shit, if that's not your thing? Rapist? 
victim of some elaborate smear campaign. For the next six months, we waited for a reporter's call, and I worked on that calculus. He's thrown lots of grabby patrons out of his bars. Good guy. Has a shit ton of female executives in his companies. Points to the plus. Looks kind of weird. Some might wonder if he's circumcised variety weird. Slide the marker toward rapist. But the 2007 accuser seemed so incredibly full of shit. Move the marker again to his favor. I also tried to reconcile his era, the same one I came up in. 16 Candles, loved that movie. Remember the part where the jock gave the nerd his hammered girlfriend to bang in his dad's Rolls Royce? That was so fucked up. Revenge of the Nerds, great waterbed scene where the nerd puts on a mask, pretends to be the cheerleader's boyfriend, fucks her, but because he was so good at the sex, she wasn't even mad. Great love story. <laughs> and today, if some trench coat wearing lovesick boy shows up outside my daughter's bedroom window blasting music, I am not going to encourage her to appreciate his grand gesture. I'm going to call 911 John Cusack as God is my witness. I work through the fact that I really want to believe every woman's worst story in a feeble attempt to make right for the hundreds, thousands of years we weren't believed enough, and for every time someone said, but look what she was wearing. But the increase in the baseline belief can't mean the blind ignorance of truth. That's how Me Too dies, right? A reporter finally called. I flew back to headquarters, coached my client, through two very tough interviews. I shared my deep thoughts about 80s movies with the reporter and lobbied that this guy was likely in the ignorant, selfish, really bad sex zone of Me Too spectrum. Jerk, yes, rapist, no. But the reporter did not give a shit about my spectrum, the first accuser's diminished credibility, or rapey coming-of-age movies. I struggled with the hellfire I knew was coming for him. Legally, the statute of limitations had long since expired, but I predicted people would call for his castration, boycott his businesses, and ultimately hurt his majority female staff. Dude has plenty of money, but the bartender that needed to make rent, he seemed genuinely distraught about that. I know I was. The story ran and was absolutely brutal. More accusers, more credible sounding details than I could have imagined. But I was okay with my role as his named paid defender. The guy was getting publicly shamed, but he deserved it. And he deserved to live and learn. In fact, I started to believe that maybe the situation would create an opportunity to talk about what's missing from the Me Too movement. Space has to exist between absolute fucking flogging and turning a blind eye. Where's the timeout corner where we can stick Al Franken and this guy? I brainstormed with a client about the best ways to fill that void. We could advance the conversation. I told him to keep his head down, take his lumps, but that when the mob turned their attention to the next asshole in the news, maybe we could create space where bad behavior can be acknowledged 
sincerely apologized for, learned from, maybe forgiven. A place that I can even say this out loud with being, without being called a rape apologist or get my feminist card pulled. Then I got a call from a friend who worked for him in her early 20s. I had forgotten the connection. She had just seen the story. Her voice cracked when she confirmed it was me who was helping him. I'm one of his victims, she began. Turns out the line between huge asshole and rapist is clear, and I'm the asshole. That was Stacy Mann Pearson. Next, Kathy West travels back in time with Say Something. Halfway through the school year, my eight-year-old daughter comes home and tells me about a new girl in class. Today was the new girl's second day. And at recess, some kids found dog poop on the playground and threw it at her. What? I say, what? My daughter says, whoa, why is this such a strong reaction? And I say, because, imagine you're at a brand new school. You don't have friends yet, and on your second day, kids you barely know throw poop at you. She says, yeah, just now realizing how horrifying this is. I ask, did you stop them? Did you help her? She's silent and sheepish, so I keep talking. You stick up for people. I hope you said something. And what would I have her say? As an adult, I could shut down poop-throwing children with a single sentence. But what does a child say? I want to arm her with wisdom and courage and words, but all that comes to mind is a memory from my childhood. In my fourth grade class, Ted was the weird kid. We all knew he didn't belong, with his buzzed hair and his green plastic rimmed glasses that darkened in the sunlight. He never stopped licking his lips. He shouted unexpectedly. He boasted about taking medication, and he went to the bathroom at least eight times a day. He was an unpredictable presence we didn't know how to respond to, and nobody showed us how. I didn't feel guilty for ignoring Ted. I wasn't on the bottom social rung with him, but my own status sometimes felt a little unstable. I got along okay, but earlier in that school year, a girl named Ashley had noticed the purple paisley stationery that I brought to school, and she decided to outdo me with pink paper and bright Lisa Frank stickers. She handed out stickers to almost all the girls, initiating them into her exclusive club. She gave me no stickers and told her club not to share with me. I didn't know why. Defensively, I founded my own club with my best friend, but we named the club Twinner Two Twins, which eliminated the possibility of adding members. Ashley had nearly all the girls in class on her side, and I winced sometimes at being left out. I told myself it was fine. I had a club with my friend and a crush on Scott Tweed who wore horn-rimmed glasses and liked Ninja Turtles and was nerdy enough to be in my league. 
Amidst all this, I never had reason to speak to weird Ted. He never spoke to me. I considered him silly for caring so little about what people thought. I don't know how the plot against Ted started, since the plan hatched within the ranks of Ashley's club. But one morning, a whisper rippled through the classroom telling every girl to meet back here after lunch, rather than running out to recess. In the cafeteria, I scarfed my rubbery lasagna, and I raised my hand to be excused, and I ran to our classroom to be included. When I entered, as one of the last stragglers, I saw the girls had converged in the middle of the classroom, surrounding Ted, who had come in after lunch to take his medication or drop off his lunchbox. Through a thicket of permed hair and scrunchies, I could see Ted's face, while Ashley told him the story that went as I remember it, like this. Ten years ago, the principal at this school was horrible. He was mean to everyone. And one day, a boy named Ted wouldn't take it anymore. He was a fourth grader like us. And this was his classroom. One day, the principal went to the bathroom. Ted followed him. And he stuffed the principal's head down the toilet and drowned him. Ted received this information from Ashley with a surprising measure of calm. He seemed to wait for more. Ashley continued. We wanted to tell you because you're new and you don't know. Every year on the same day, the principal's ghost haunts the bathroom. Every year he's looking for a boy named Ted. Every year he finds one and then he kills him. Last year a boy named Ted got sucked down the toilet and he's gone forever. Snickers fluttered in the crowd. Surely, Ted could not take this seriously. But he stepped backward, open-mouthed. I stood on the outer edge of the gaggle that surrounded him, feeling like an outsider, but being every bit a part of this circle as anyone else. This felt mean, and I wrinkled my forehead at it, but I still let the story be told. Today, Ashley said, 10 years ago today, Ted killed the principal, and if you go in the bathroom today, his ghost will kill you. Ted's eyes widened behind his glasses. He licked his lips the way he always licked his lips. Ashley said, we're telling you this to save your life. The story ended, the circle broke, the girls turned together like a school of fish and rushed toward the door to catch the rest of recess. I was swept out with them, running to be included. Someone near me giggled. Did you see his face? He'll never go in the bathroom. I can't wait to watch him pee his pants. I stopped. The girls dashed past me out the double doors. And then Ted walked by, silent, hands in pockets, Glasses shaded half dark, even though he wasn't even in the sun yet. I didn't like him. But three years earlier, I peed my pants at school, back in first grade. I remembered the warm shame when my bladder gave up and let go, the unmistakable smell, the drip, drip of evidence onto the floor. Nobody deserved that, not even Ted. More importantly, in a competition between me and Ashley, 
she might have all the stickers and all the friends, but I was nice. I couldn't let Ted believe that Ashley was looking out for him. I returned to the empty classroom alone. I pulled out my beautiful notebook filled with purple paisley paper. I wrote a note telling Ted the story was a lie and that he should use the bathroom if he needed. The recess bell rang as I finished. Realizing that all those girls would pour back into this room and be present when Ted read this note, I froze. I couldn't sign Kathy. The girls couldn't know I was the mole. They think I was his friend. But with the clamor of footsteps down the hall, I could not remember what you should sign when you want to remain nameless. What was that word? What was it? Louder, louder, I heard my classmates' voices approaching the door. It seemed improper to leave an important note unsigned. So I wrote the only nameless sign-off I could think of under duress, your secret admirer. I tore the paper from the notebook, rushed to Ted's desk, stuck the note in, and returned to my seat, feigning nonchalance. Before my fellow fourth graders buzzed in fresh for the from the monkey bars and asphalt, Ted would know the truth and be free to relieve his bladder, but nobody would know I saved him. From my desk, I watched Ted unfold the paper and read it line by line. And then, reading over Ted's shoulder, my crush, Scott Tweed. Anonymous. Anonymous. <laughs> that is how you sign something when you don't want anyone to know who you are. Scott was reading the substitute phrase that had come to mind under pressure. Your secret admirer. <sighs> I calmed the clutch in my gut. A secret admirer is, by nature, secret. I was still hidden behind an unknown identity. But then, Scott leaned over to one of the girls, a girl who knew whose pretty patterned paper belonged to whom, and a circuit connected in my brain that hadn't yet fired when I wrote my well-intentioned note, my signature Paisley paper. I might as well have signed my name. I watched the game of telephone snake through the class, just willing it not to reach me. The girl who sat next to me leaned over and whispered in dismay, you like Ted? <laughs> my lungs constricted, my stomach shriveled. I wanted to climb under my desk. I concentrated on my worksheet, practicing my handwriting with unequaled focus, as if I hadn't heard, which is something Ted would do. If kids throw dog poop at the new girl, I want my daughter to shout at them to stop. But this memory reminds me how dangerous speaking up can feel, how full of risk and competing motives. I want a tidy, triumphant story to inspire my daughter to champion the outcast. But all I've got for her are my bumbling attempts to be good. That's all we've ever got. We don't know everything, and we're not always brave enough, and we see in hindsight that we should have used lined paper. <laughs> so, I tell my daughter, 
it's okay. It's okay if you didn't say anything this time. As long as tomorrow, when you see the new girl, you say something kind. That was Kathy West. Jimmy Myers does anything but phone it in, in So Don't Be Afraid. Chubby amateur goth lesbians with purple hair. Bald black men, thugs, Latinos, or twinks of any color. A friend recently posted a meme that asked, $20,000 in cash, but you have to make your porn search history public. Would you? I'm not sure if this is an actual contest, but now that I've shared the information, I'm putting it out there that I expect my 20 large and small non-sequential bills. Thank you very much. Last fall, after a year spent building what I thought was going to be my forever career, only to be chucked aside because I assumed my time was worth at least a little money, I found myself needing a job. And despite being uneducated, inexperienced, middle-aged, and at the time still transitioned, dream jobs weren't exactly falling into my lap. It had been a year of highs and lows, and as the summer wound down, not only was I unemployed, I was also rebuilding a marriage that I had nearly single-handedly wrecked. After years of living in relative limelight and making my most important relationship secondary, I wanted to hibernate and do everything I could to fix what really mattered. That's why, when I saw the ad for phone sex worker needed, I didn't think twice about responding. Did people still do that? We have the internet, so affordable porn is available, right? And Tumblr's free, so why would anybody pay for it? But pay they do, some through the nose, to get themselves off. When Rachel called me back and offered me a few hours a week to try it out, I couldn't refuse. She had two clients for me. The first was Heather a 60-year-old retired New York City Port Authority cop with diagnosable mommy issues who was into forced feminization. He sounded like Barney Frank, and he wanted to hear about old women wrestling, beating each other up, and most importantly for him, torturously milking one another. Wait, and I could get paid for doing this? So anyway, I didn't know it was possible to, you know, feel this good. I mean, I ain't never hit no one before. Well, except my late husband, and that was only once. He was okay, you know. You know how men are. And we was together for nearly 30 years. It was that night that that nice Mr. Humphrey lost and Mr. Nixon won. And I was a Humphrey supporter, and he wasn't. And Fred just wouldn't shut up about it, and I threw a six-pack at his head. But it didn't make me come or nothing. But when I started at the wrestling club and that old bat Millie pushed me down without no warning, well, it felt really good 
putting them rusty C clamps around her saggy double Fs and hooking them up to 110 volts. I ain't never flooded my panties like I did that night for at least one hour, three times a week, Heather would call, and I would just wax poetic like that for $2 a minute. <laughs> then there was Steve from Amarillo, who used to call from the comfort of his air-conditioned combine as he worked the several thousand acres of his corn and wheat farm. A BDSM client of Rachel's for a dozen years, Rachel struck gold when she learned of his obsession with helping bullied kids. Building a website full of invented stories from parents and children that Rachel had helped, she cycled in different girls to play parents or older students for Steve to counsel. I was Jeff, a good old boy from Hindman, nestled in the hollers of the Blue Mountains of southeastern Pennsylvania, and my daughter Sherry, well, I tell you what, I am in a humdinger of a fix, Steve. My girl, she's just the sweetest little flower you'd ever want to meet and smart as a whip, but God love her, the girl can't walk and chew gum without a tripping over her feet. I knowed it was going to be a problem when she went out for the volleyball, but I just couldn't bring myself to say no. Anyways, she made the team somehow, and oh my gosh, these girls is a-messing with her something fierce, I guarantee it. And for four hours a week, I would recount the sordid details of my daughter's suspension after being set up by the mean girls, and then just sit back and let Steve share his expertise with me. I got paid for sitting in my living room and making this shit up, and it was glorious. But Rachel only had the two clients for me, and I needed to make a little more. So I found a few larger phone sex companies and sent in my applications. Within a week, I was set up as the newest girl with Palm Island. The owner wasn't sure about my voice, so she gave me what she called a tranny character named Vienna. Vienna, Vienna Sausage, it's a pleasure to meet you, honey. What's on your dirty little mind today? The way it works is that the companies buy stock photos of models and throw them up on their website, and the workers pretend to be the girls in the pictures. There's a chat room where the customers come in and flirt with the girls, and the girl's job is to let that go on a few minutes and then get the guys to call. Palm Island was a bit of a bust, and I barely got any minutes, only building one meaningful relationship with a client. Pat was a UPS driver from Pierre, South Dakota, and he really, really loved trans women. He would call for 30 to 60 minutes every Saturday and Sunday, and we would chat for a while before he made it clear that he was ready to get going, and then I would invent a story for him, stretching things out verbally while he stretched them literally. <laughs> but I needed more money, so I moved on. Phone sex perfection was great. They gave me two characters, Camille, a much hotter tranny, that is an industry term, than Vienna, and Stella, a wizened MILF. Newly retired after teaching 30 years of high school biology and full of all kinds of delicious stories. In the first few weeks, I had at least half a dozen regulars that I'd made, and the money wasn't bad, especially considering I got to work from home and work as often or as little as I liked. For the most part, my regulars were fun to talk to. 
Pat followed me from Palm Island and loved to pretend that he was the phone sex operator, so I didn't even have to do any work there <laughs> except talk about my made-up life and moan. My favorite was The Rev, a soft-spoken man in his mid-30s named Enrique, who would mostly do text calls, paying $2.50 a minute to text somebody. What got him off was talking to a fallen MILF who peppered her dirty stories with religious lingo. Have you ever had a holiness blowjob? I was actually having fun, as long as I could keep the image of these guys sitting in their parents' basements out of my mind. It was obvious most of them were just shy or had zero game when it came to meeting prospective mates. I felt sorry for them. Then I started getting those calls. The first was from a guy who called himself Allison's dad. I don't think I need to elaborate on what he was interested in talking about. Or Clint. Clint, who sounded like Napoleon Dynamite and whose screen name was the very creative bathroom. He started every chat with, are you ready to potty, hottie? Then there was Cedric, a 50-something former surgical administrator from the Bay Area, now on disability, who would hold himself up in a day's in for a week at a time with his 20-something girlfriend and five large-screen TVs that he brought from home, all playing different porn, and they would do meth for the entire week while he dropped about $5,000 making four- and five-hour-long calls to several different girls, wanting to talk about his life, his relationship, and the kinds of little girls he wanted to put into a dungeon. Our job was to listen to him, and for five of the most anthropologically interesting hours I've ever spent, I made $600 the first time he called me. The company was owned by women, and all the employees were women, and nearly every one of my coworkers had been doing this work since the early 90s. They were very clear up front that we weren't allowed to chat in the chat room about anything illegal, and I was fine with that because I didn't want to. But what they meant was, just don't leave an electronic trail. If you have a customer on the phone, they're in charge. I asked Ariel, how do you listen to this day after day? Do the rest of you actually, you know, make up stuff for the pedos? If you want to keep them on the phone and make money, you do. Luckily, Cedric didn't become a regular. I knew I couldn't keep doing this, at least keep doing it successfully, after my call with Bus Driver. Bus Driver was in his mid-30s and had a very Italian last name but spoke with a thick Scottish brogue. Phone sex perfection is a callback service. So the guys call the dispatcher, give their name and credit card info, and then the dispatcher assigns the call. If you've been chatting with a guy, it's your call. But sometimes, guys will call in without chatting and ask for whoever's available. Bus driver was one of those types. The dispatcher that morning, also the owner of the company, so my boss, messaged me with his name and phone number and said simply, he's a good caller, meaning he's a company regular, and should be given whatever he wants. Oh, and he likes camping and kids. She said it the way you would say, he likes football and long walks on the beach. 
I dialed the number and found out very quickly that what my boss knew and what she meant was that he wanted to get off listening to someone talk about a busload of little children being violated, called racial epithets, and then buried in a pit. And apparently every girl in the company was expected and did a certain number of minutes with him every month because he was a good customer. What he had paid for was 30 minutes, and he ended up getting a refund that day because I couldn't redirect him to something I felt comfortable talking about. And frankly, I wasn't even paying attention to him, having Googled his name and finding him on the sex offender registry in San Diego. How do you do this? I asked Ariel again. Well, you just try and dissociate. You tell yourself that if they're talking on the phone, they're not actually doing this to anyone. And then she told me a story that was meant to make me feel better and easier about doing this. It was about a call 15 years ago that still haunted her, a call from a father one late Christmas Eve after everyone else had been in bed. He called her just to chat, and then he wanted her to pretend to be his little girl as he violated and strangled her under the Christmas tree. She told me she still had nightmares about that, and she still does this work. I talked to a few other girls, and I asked them all the same thing. How do you do this? Each one said a variation of the same thing. Who else are they going to talk to? If they're talking about it, they're not doing it. One girl said, they're sick, all of them. But you know what? They're not going to ask for help because the second they do, their life is over. They all know what they feel is wrong, but that doesn't prevent their brains from thinking it any more than knowing you shouldn't have cancer doesn't make the cells stop dividing. The difference is, if you ask a doctor to cure your cancer, he won't throw you in jail. I quit two weeks later, unable to listen anymore, and I still feel guilty. Jimmy Myers. Next, Marcelino Quinones travels all the way to Cuba for an unforgettable life lesson in green. Growing up, I remember being asked my favorite color every classroom I entered. From a young age, green spoke to me, and I loved digging into the Crayola box and pulling out as many greens as I could find. The more I grew, the more indications life gave me I made the correct choice from an early age. In the third grade, I was cast in my first play as Peter Pan, and I had to wear a green sweater as my costume. I've noticed everyone has to wear my favorite color at least once a year, and if they don't, they'll get pinched. Thank you, St. Patrick's. My green eyes have always made me feel great. Some people think I'm stubborn. I prefer the word committed. I'm not stubborn about green being my favorite color. I'm just committed to the idea of green being my favorite color. The older I've gotten, the more I've realized what the word green means to the world. Green means money, means power, means access. But in order to make green, you don't only need yellow and blue as the color wheel indicates. If you're a landscaper, you need the brown of the soil to make your green. If you're a waiter, you need the white of the sour cream that goes on top of your chimichanga or the red of your salsa to make your green. If you're a university professional, 
You need the black or blue to write emails and proposals and partner MOUs to make your greens. In reality, you need every color in the world to make your green. In 2006, I developed an obsession. I mean, an admiration for Che Guevara. The red and black image we've all seen pulled and drove me to read countless pages of that man's life. I spent many nights alone immersed in his life and adventures, eventually publishing a play called El Che about the iconic Cuban revolutionary. In 2016, the play was presented here in Phoenix, and a multitude of colors showed up to support their local artist community. But much like life and the creation of green, it doesn't just happen. Many steps have to be taken to create a splash in town. In 2012, I took my first trip to Cuba with my eventual wife, Micah, to the island. I wanted to live and breathe Cuba more than I had done in the many books or documentaries of the place Che used to make his mark on the world. Because of the research I had done, I knew Cuba for many years had Che Guevara on their currency. I wanted a Che Guevara dollar bill, but was told as a foreigner I could not get one. You see, Cuba has two currencies, one for locals and one for travelers. Thus, I was out of luck. I was out of the green Che Guevara. We spent a whole week on the island at the Institute Superior of Arts, working with students as they acquired different voice techniques. I was the translator and Micah did the teaching. Each night, we would go to a different theater performance to see how the Cubans practiced their craft. One night, after seeing a performance at the Bertolt Brecht Theater, the group and I went to a dinner at a local pizza place. The night was beautiful, and there was a light breeze that kissed your cheeks every five minutes. For that reason, we decided to sit outside. I remember we sat at a table next to a wall with a light fence to make clear who was inside and who was outside of the restaurant. We ordered, and their pizza was cheesy, really thick white and yellow cheese at every bite. In the middle of a bite, an older brown man with dirty fatigues came to the wall and said to me in Spanish, Excuse me, sir, do you have a few cents for me to get a coffee? He was the first person to ask me for money, and I turned him away by saying, Sir, I'm sorry, I don't have any change. He nodded, lowered his head, and left, and I continued my dinner. Five minutes later, that same man came to me and made the same request, to which I made the same reply. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a few cents for me to get a coffee? Sir, I'm sorry, I don't have any change. Again, he left, and I was able to finish my meal. As soon as I took my last bite, that same old man came to me a third time. He said, excuse me, sir. Do you have a few cents for me to get a coffee? I looked at him and really admired his persistence. He had been to me three times and made the same calm request. I realized at that moment he might follow me to my hotel room and ask me again for some money for a cup of coffee. So I said, look at him, so I said to him, looking him straight in the eyes, Sir, I don't have any change, but here, please take this bill. He was not going to stop. He left and I took a sip of my wine and now with one less green bill in my pocket. Five minutes later, 
That same old man came to me a fourth time. Before he said anything, I told him, Sir, I've already given you money. I can't give you any more money. He said to me, I'm not here to ask you for money. I'm here to give you your change. I laughed and said, no, 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 no. That money is yours. Take it. It's yours. He responded in a firm voice. No, sir. I asked you for money for coffee. I had my coffee, and I'm here to give you your change. Here you go. He stared me down and made it clear he was not going to keep that money. I extended my hand and took my change. At that moment, that man made clear his true colors. He wasn't green with envy or red for passion to ask every tourist for money. He was clean, regardless of his old fatigues. He was a royal purple because of his integrity. He was blue because of his calmness. And he was green himself because of his thirst for life and honesty. He reminded me we can all be made of different colors all at once. And we all have the ability to be our true colors with every interaction. Certainly, we can all learn to honor our word a little bit more, just like that man did. When I got to our hotel room, I looked at my two new Cuban bills. A light green and gray Jose Marti and a red Che Guevara bill that man gave me. I could not get otherwise without my change. I carry those bills with me everywhere I go. I mean, who else has a Che Guevara bill with them? Everywhere. I carry those bills with me because they remind me every single time I take out my wallet that truth and integrity go a long way. That was Marcelino Quinones. Our final reader is Hannah Viquesne. Hannah's piece, And I'd Be So Blue Without You, is adapted from a version she originally wrote for Shoe Flies, Barflies teen program. I was sitting behind four large copper drums on a wooden stool that made me a single inch taller than if I were to stand on the ground. You see, as the timpanist, your part consists of two things waiting impatiently for your part to come around, which you may or may not have already missed, and not. I was waiting for my part to come around, but that wasn't for another 83 measures. And of course, the wonderfully slow tempo of Adagio. Just great. I was zoning out, swinging my legs back and forth a few inches above the ground, as I often would during brand practice. I started to daydream. I wondered what, what was for dinner whether I was going to get to watch TV, if my brother would beat me to it, and if I really needed to finish that calculus worksheet tonight or not. The usual teenage stuff. Play that chord again, the one at measure 348, Mr. Roberts asked the band, knocking me out of my daydream. This was the third time he asked that very question, I noted. At least the spot he was asking for kept changing. I stared down at my disoriented reflection in one of the bowls of the timpani. Of course, I didn't play in this section. The band blew into their instruments, and immediately my shoulders raised, and I shut my eyes tightly while lifting my hands to cover my poor ears. A muddy orange-brown color made its way into my vision. It's not a pleasant color at all. The color of mud and blood after someone had taken a nasty fall off their bike in the rain. 
just seeing that color made me cringe even more than the actual sound of the chord that was being played. You see, I hear things most people see. When there's a sound, there's a color that goes with it. The thing making that sound, the tone of it, the other sounds that are all with it can change the color, sometimes instantaneously. Mr. Roberts waved his arms frantically to signal the band to stop, and thankfully, after a few moments, there was silence once more. Let's see. He was shaking his head and looked at the tiny printed score on the top of the stand. Tuba, which we don't have. Bassoons, bass clarinet, barry, and uh, third trombones. You should all be on a D. Tenor, second trombones, euphonium. I stopped paying attention and turned my gaze toward my reflection in the drum. It's gray and dull. Nothing interesting. All right, again. Already I'd prepped my hands to be ready, but this time when the band played, everything became a warm rose color. Like that tint everyone wants to see when they say, put on your rose-colored glasses. It's calming, but at the same time, I felt every limb of my body shivering from the beauty of the chord. I'd seen this color, this chord before. D major seven add nine. It's one of my favorites the richness of the bass on the root with the slight clash and the harmony of the seventh and the ninth note added to the texture of the chord. I found myself smiling slightly at the sound. It put me at ease. But the longer the chord was held, the more brown the color became. Someone was trying to change something that didn't need to be changed. It was affecting the whole experience. Mr. Roberts, once more, stopped the band's sound and tried to explain how certain voices need to make sure they're in tune and so that it sounded right. Every chord had its own color and every instrument had one too, but they all needed to work together to make sure the whole picture happened. As he finished his explanation, he asked for the chord once more and then the one that followed it. Rose to, to a deep ocean blue. How long it had been since I'd seen that color? Only a few months, but hearing that one chord, that one color, made me realize I'd forgotten it. Maybe it was purposeful, forgetting that color, but I didn't want to hear it any longer. Most people would say, oh, that sounds nice, but me? I hate that color, and I hate it for one reason. Her voice was that color. When she asked me how my day was, it was a calming blue, like rolling waves out on the sea. When she would yell that I was late, it was more a harsh, bright blue, like a neon sign lighting up on a vacant street. When she recited a bedtime story, voices and all, it was a dark and cool blue, like the expansive night sky. And she talked to me for the last time over the phone and said, I love you. See you when you get home tomorrow. It was the purest blue color yet. A child finds comfort in their mother's voice. I mean, it's one of the first sounds they hear. And I did once find comfort in it, but that comfort has since faded. The last week she was alive, she couldn't speak. What noises she was able to make were a harsh, muted blue color both unpleasant and heartbreaking, hearing a once pure and lively blue turn into such a disgusting color. 
I avoided her because I couldn't stand hearing someone so strong sound so defeated. That color, blue, found it was common. A simple chord, literally nothing interesting about it. There were no complex harmonies, no overtones to look for, no depth to feel. I hardly knew this sound existed before until I stopped hearing it all the time. Now I hated how common and overdone it was. I hated hearing it every day, wherever I went. It was supposed to be my color, the color that only I was supposed to hear. That was my mother's color, and only I deserved the privilege of hearing it all the time. But yet, here we are. Everyone gets the joy of hearing that stupid color. But no one's going to know just how special that color truly is. Even my own family doesn't know how special that simple color is. I could describe it all I want. I could play it. I could sing it. I could show you exactly what I saw. But nothing would be exactly what I saw. No. What I saw, I'll never see again. They can't replicate something that beautiful, that amazing, that special ever again but my synesthesia forces me. I can't see it ever again, but I can't stop hearing it. I could go blind, but my ears would hear perfectly fine. I could go deaf, but there's still so many more colors than just blue I'd miss out on. I could simply try and avoid anything sounding blue, but when almost everything contains blue, it's next to impossible to avoid. Maybe it's like an allergy. The world's not going to change just because I can't live with it. I don't like the idea, but it's just something I'm going to have to live with the rest of my life. I'm still a kid. I only recently became an adult in the eyes of society, but I have to live every day of my life being constantly reminded that I can't hear the blue I want to hear. That was Hannah McKesney, and that's it for this episode of the Barflies Podcast. Special thanks to my co-curator, Katie Johnson, podcast producer, Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. To learn more about Barflies, visit barfliesaz.com. Mm-hmm.